Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mom of the Hard Kid. Today, I'm going to be telling you about one of my favorite books. Yes, this is a book review. Yes, I know they're not your favorite, but I can't help it because I know there are parents out there who are looking for resources to understand their children better. And I think this is one of the biggest resources that there is. As a matter of fact, I'm going to guess that most of you who are listening have actually heard of or even read this book. It is that good. Those of you who haven't heard, there is a book called The Whole-Brained Child by Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And it is an absolutely beneficial book to read. I came across it first when I was in my foster care training. They had us read it and I have read it three times. I read it during foster care training. I read it while I was fostering and then I read it. I'm sorry, that's not correct. <laughs> I know it doesn't matter, but I hate doing that. So I read it while I was doing foster care. I read it after I adopted my daughter and then I read it a couple, several years later and each time it read completely differently. This is kind of how all of the books I've read have been is anything that anybody recommended. I just needed more information. I needed to help my child. So I kept going back to these resources that I had inside the four walls of my house and they just read completely different. I think the other one that I read that was just massively different each time was The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog by Bruce Perry. That was <laughs> so different each time. And it had a lot of good lessons in it. But I do think The Whole Brain Child is probably the book you need to read. You need to be aware of it. I recommend it for everyone. I would say I think it sort of slides more to the neurotypical child. But you can even use this information for adults. Yeah. If you look at the page 154, it goes through a synopsis of the book and the lessons that it teaches. And it kind of breaks it down by age group. But when I read the book, I think mostly they're sort of aiming for like eight and under. They go up to the age of 12 and how to talk to your kids at these ages. But I think that, again, this will work for adults. This is good information for a lot of people. So it starts off talking about the left brain, right brain, and then it moves into the upstairs and downstairs brain. Um, throughout the book, it gives a collection of strategies. I, I don't even know how many there are, but more than a dozen. And it has a bunch of strategies to help you out throughout your child's life. And they will refer to the upstairs, downstairs brain throughout the entirety of the book. And what it is, is they have the downstairs brain, which is where your survival, your fight or flight, your pure reactionary self is. And then your upstairs brain, which is where you process things and where you make sound decisions and where you control yourself and, and where you can have empathy. And so when you have your child who has been maybe like my child, neglected and doesn't really get that whole empathy part, then you can understand maybe that's because they're in their downstairs brain. They're more in a survival place. I, I really, I just think no matter where your child is, this is a great book. So if you go through the strategies, I'm just going to give you a list of a few of them. 
they have the first one, connect and redirect, surfing the emotional waves. Great. I think one of the reasons we even look at books like this is because we have massive amounts of emotional waves coming at us. The second one is name it to tame it, which is where you let them kind of walk through their experience, verbalize things, be able to, you know, put names to the feelings that they're having which is excellent for development. But in this one, they're trying to say, you know, you need to engage your upstairs brain. That's the third one. So um, let's move down to eight. Let the clouds of emotions roll by and teach that feelings come and go. Just just things like this that are really important. They have tons of stories. They even have illustrations, which is super helpful. But I really love the personal stories that they have because they will walk through their situation with their own children. And they're situations that I think most parents experience. And they give little examples. So for example, on page 51, there is a cartoon. And the cartoon is a mom, she's sitting in the car and her daughter, who appears to be buckled like a toddler in a toddler chair in the back, says, I hate you, mommy. And then mommy responds, that's not okay to say. I don't ever want to hear you say that again. And so that is their example of engaging the downstairs brain. But then they have an example below where you engage the upstairs brain. And little girl says, I hate you, mommy. And mommy says, wow, you're really mad. And little girl says, yeah, I hate you. And mommy says, is that because I didn't get you a necklace? And little girl says, yeah, you're so mean. And then mommy says, well, the necklace wasn't for sale. It's okay if you want to keep feeling upset. But if you'd rather, we can be problem solvers and think of another idea. And little girl fictitiously says, how do we do that? (laughs) Because of course, we all know this is not exactly how it's going to play out. But it gives a really great example of the difference. Because when you walk through these books, you can be overwhelmed because you normally don't even come to these books until you're overwhelmed. And this just simplifies it in a way where you're like, oh, I guess I do do that. Oh, I guess I am just trying to stop this behavior. Oh, I guess I'm not focused on really engaging their upstairs brain. I'm really focused on just like stopping the behavior. And maybe that's not beneficial. So there are a couple parts that I really liked about this book that comes sort of towards the end. But I also want to say, because this is more geared toward neurotypical children, that there is a way I'm going to adjust the information that they give and sort of add a little bit of my own information from my personal experience with my daughter. So One of the chapters is called the Me We Connection. And this is when they talk about the selfishness of a child, how they think me, 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 and how you pull them out into we. And what they say inside this chapter is that, well, it kind of comes across as, you know, once they recognize the we and that there are other people in a community to be part of, then they're going to love it. Kumbaya. (laughs) And I just think, whoa, when you have a child who has reactive attachment disorder, if you approach it like that and you say, (laughs) you know, as soon as you're part of the we, you will be so happy. They will 
burn that bridge down so fast. So you have to approach it with a child like, sorry, life includes more people than you. You have to learn to deal with this or you're not going to get what you want in the long run. Because when you're dealing with a reactive attachment child, they're already actively evading the we. They know it's there. They don't trust it and they don't want it. So it's not like the normal little child who's just totally unaware that there is a we. These kids know there's a we. They don't want it. So you have to frame things in a way that says, sorry, you're part of a we, whether you want to be part of a we or not. I hope this makes sense. Um, and, and then they can use it in a way where they understand how that benefits them. But the next part I liked is on page 124, where it talks about the mirror neurons. And they're talking about kids get a sense of the we, the group, by responding to the actions of others. So they give an example of a monkey. And the monkey has like neural readers inside its head. And it eats a peanut and a certain neuron fires when it eats a peanut. But then they found out that when it observes somebody else eating a peanut, the same neuron would fire. And so they're realizing that they have these mirror neurons and that is how they realize, you know, where their place is in the world and that there's other people and that, that there's other things and et cetera, et cetera. And they give examples of like a yawn when someone yawns and then the next person yawns and the next person yawns. And if you think of your children, you can actually see this too when it comes to hunger or thirst or if someone has a cracker and they're like, oh, I want a cracker. <laughs> it just sort of lights up that one part of their brain, right? But when you have a child who's been massively neglected as a baby, these mirror neurons don't work in the way that normally developed children's brains work. Their neuro mirror neurons had nothing to work with. They're staring at a blank wall for hours and hours and hours and hours. And their interactions with people probably didn't happen enough for this to like actively take place. So one of the things when I was thinking about it is I thought, this is really interesting because as my child got older, she was so selfish and she was so self-centered, which is a very babyish and toddler way to view the world. But I realized as she's older, she's doing these things. And I kind of wonder if that's because her mirror neurons are, are hitting a point that most kids hit when they're 10 months old or a year and a half. And that can look incredibly selfish. So a lot of our kids might just be having these misfirings or these late blooming mirror neurons coming into play because they didn't have it when they were young. Now, as much as I recommend this book, I came across the workbook that comes with this book. I had a therapist and she recommended the workbook. And I think, again, it's more geared towards neurotypical children, but I, I don't think it's a terrible thing. I, I prefer the book over the workbook for sure. But to give you an example of some of the stuff that it talks about is if you go to page 39 of the version of the book that I have, it talks about tantrums and responding to tantrums. And 
what the benefit of this book is, is they talk about upstairs tantrum characteristics and downstairs tantrum characteristics. And then they have you on the next page respond your typical response, write it down, how you would respond to certain situations. So one of the situations is at the park, your preschooler gets furious and hits another child who won't share sand toys with him. And they have you write what your response would be. And then you go through on the next page and talk about more in-depth information. So the first thing that you need to write down on the next page is, did you find that in some cases you had more patience than in others? Did one kind of tantrum make you more upset than another? Also, how do you talk to yourself when your child tantrums? Do you say, here we go again, she's always doing this. What judgments are you making about your child, such as he's so spoiled? Or the more you can clear you can get clear on your own feelings here, the more intentionally you can respond to future tantrums, write about what you notice. So I don't think this is a bad exercise. I think this is a great exercise of making you aware of how your relationship with your child works. Another example, and they break it up by the strategies that they have inside the book. So strategy number four is use it or lose it. And it has another part where they say, okay, we have the goal of sound decision making and your action step is, and they have an example of it. I'm going to let my toddler have more say in everyday decisions like picking out her clothes and choosing activities within reason. But then they have a space where you can do that for yourself. So you can work your way through the difficult things your child is offering and maybe what you're going to do about it. But what I I'm going to give you another example of this workbook where it says on page 51, it says, do as I do. So it says, we always want to keep in mind what we're modeling for our kids with our own behavior. As we teach them about honesty, generosity, kindness, and respect, we want to make sure that they see us living a life that embodies those values well. The examples we set for good or for bad will significantly impact the way our child's brain, upstairs brain develops. So think about the functions of the upstairs brain as they relate to your own life and what your kids see you doing. Think about your own decision making as well as how you control your emotions and your body and how much Sorry, it goes on. But I have a hard time with this kind of approach when you're dealing with a severely neurodivergent child because when you approach reactive attachment disorder, you cannot approach it with kindness, honesty, generosity, and respect. I mean, I actually think you should do all of those things, but that isn't what is going to speak to that child. So if your child is stuck in that downstairs brain and they're stuck in the fight or flight, most people are like, oh, well, isn't love what's going to get them out of this? And I think, yeah, but love does not show up like hugs and kisses to a reactive attachment child. Love shows up as blunt honesty and consistency. And you cannot do that while you're burping rainbows. They don't trust the rainbows. They've been rainbowed at by somebody 
fakey all the time. When I think of my daughter, who was in several foster placements before she came to us at 11 months old, that that girl had been rainbowed at so many times and then passed along. She does not trust the rainbows. So if you approach a child with reactive attachment disorder or whatever it is they're going to change it to in the future, you have to know that they are not going to be trusting. They're not a normal child in the sense that normal children trust their parents. You have to give them strict parameters and say, I'm going to keep these parameters and until you realize you can trust those parameters. And if I change those parameters, I'm going to tell you about it. You're going to be made aware of it and it's going to change because it's just completely different. And I tell, I want to just screen this at the therapist. Therapist, this does not work for a severely mentally ill child. You cannot just say, hey, they're going to mirror your actions because they're not. They're actively fighting against your behaviors. If you present yourself a certain way, they will actively fight against the way that you present yourself. So it's just not beneficial for children who have severe mental health issues. However, I don't think that it's a bad thing to go through. If your child has severe mental health issues, then you can approach filling this out in a completely different way. And I think it could be still beneficial because sometimes even when we know the information, it is so nice to be reminded of it. Now, there's one more part of this workbook that I'm going to read to you. And I'm going to read to you the answer that I wrote in this section. So it talks about first survival moments and what your techniques are. And then it shifts to the next question and says, now shift your focus and think about your goals when it comes to helping your child thrive. What do you really want for them, both now and as they move towards adolescence and adulthood? And I look at my answer, which says, I want her to be a contributing member of society with meaningful relationships. And so I suppose I am aiming this again at the therapist when I say, when you have a child who comes before you with severe mental illness, severe difficulty, severe trauma, and you give them this workbook, like somehow there isn't a larger wall to get over than most kids, know that that approach might not be the best approach for this child. Because when you have a child that your main focus is that you want them to be not a drug addict, not in prison, not a criminal, when they're so little because of their behaviors, I know that sounds very intense, I'm aware of it, I hear it. But when you also look at the successful adult rate of children who have reactive attachment disorder being 10%, this, this is a reasonable goal to have to say, I want them to be a successful member of society, a contributing member of society. They have to know there's a deeper thing there. And for those parents who are trying to advocate for themselves or for their children, and you're telling your therapist, no, I don't think you understand. Like, this isn't what I'm talking about. I think we're on a deeper level than this. Don't be afraid to get a new therapist. 
don't be afraid to say, hey, I actually don't think you have enough experience with the type of child I'm talking about. You probably do very well with more neurotypical, non-mentally ill children. I need someone who can dig a little deeper. Don't be afraid to do that. It's okay. It's, it's not your job to protect that therapist's feelings. It's your job to find answers and solutions for your child. Anyway, love the whole brain child. Recommend it a thousand times. I hope you all read it. And I can see some benefit in working through the workbook. So I, I wouldn't poo-poo the workbook. I'd give it a try. Um, and hopefully it will be beneficial to you. Anyway, thank you so much for walking through the whole brain child with me. I hope you have a great day. Thanks for joining me.